0: The start of uh, this year as i began my devotions for 2022 i began uh, reading the book of first john it's a book that i've read a number of times before but i'm reading slowly and carefully uh, and in detail and you know it struck me as i as i've begun to look at it that first john is really just a summing up of the teaching of jesus that we find in john's gospel that's really all it is it's a summing up of the teaching of jesus uh, there in the gospel that he records it's interesting if you read along in first john you'll read a number of things and then john ends that letter in a surprising way and he, and he ends after talking about a number of different things he ends with the words little children guard yourselves from idols it's a kind of a startling and peculiar thing because john hasn't mentioned anything about idolatry uh, up to that point. You wonder, was it really a problem for the Christians of the day? I mean, they didn't uh, have images and idols that they bowed down to and worshipped. They didn't worship the Greek or Roman gods. Was it really a problem for the Jews even? It had been a problem uh, in the time of the Old Testament, before the captivity, we constantly see them making asherah poles and images of Baal and bowing down and worshipping them and calling upon them. But once they returned from captivity in the days of Jesus, they were very careful not to have anything that be, could be construed, an image or an idol. In fact, so much so that sometimes it brought them into conflict with the Romans in Jerusalem when they would inadvertently do something that would be offensive to the Jews, that they would think uh, smacked of idolatry. So it's a really peculiar way for John to end that letter. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. But the truth is that idolatry is so easy to fall into that we find it in places that we would least expect it. Well, before the Christmas season, we'd been looking at the Gospel of John, and we left off at chapter 5, when Jesus uh, comes to the pool at Bethesda, and there's a man there who's been lame. He doesn't have the use of his legs. For 38 years, he's been in that condition. And Jesus, you'll recall, healed that man. He said to him, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And the man got up and took his mat up, and he was walking. And the, and the chief priests and teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they saw this man walking, and they were incensed by his doing that. And they wanted to know, why are you carrying that mat on the Sabbath? And they were even more concerned when they found out that he had been healed. Well, who healed you? Who told you to do that? I pick up here in uh, John chapter 5, verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life... Even so, the Son gives life to who He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And our God, today, as we consider your word, might we honor you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The priests, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, these are the the people that John refers to as the Jews. When John uses that word, he's not talking about the Jewish people in general, but he's talking about, About those leaders, the teachers of the law, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees. And those people were angry. They were angry because these were the custodians of God's word, these were the teachers of God's word, these were the ones who applied God's word in the temple, the priests. And they, because of that privileged place, claimed to know God. Best of all. And they were angry because this man, who had been without the use of his legs for 38 years, was walking on the Sabbath. Now, that might not have been too much of a problem if he didn't walk too far, but the real problem was that he was carrying a mat. And their fury was really stoked. When they found out that he was carrying this mat on the Sabbath because Jesus had healed him. And friends, let me say it again idolatry is frighteningly easy to fall into. One Christian writer said, when we take good institutions, good attributes, good principles and good practices, and we elevate them to an ultimate status, they become evil. And they become evil because they become idols. They become the replacement for God Himself. The oracles and the ordinances of God, that is, His Word and the things that He tells us to do in it, are given to us, so that we may know God. They're not an end in themselves. And when we worship those things rather than God, we're engaging in idolatry. That's precisely what the teachers of the law did with the Sabbath. Um, in Judaism in the first century, and I think in sects of Judaism you find it as well today, there are 39 melachot, 39 forbidden things to do on the Sabbath. Number one is carrying a burden. You're not allowed to carry a burden on the Sabbath. Number four is you're not allowed to fix anything on the Sabbath. Apparently, that extends also to broken people. And so the Sabbath had become an end in itself, an idol, the thing worshipped under the guise of worshipping God. C.S. Lewis once remarked one is sometimes, not always, but sometimes glad not to be a great theologian. One might easily mistake it for being a good Christian. The temptations to which a great philologist or a great chemist is exposed are trivial in comparison. When the subject is sacred, proud and clever men may come to think that the outsiders who don't know it as well as they do are not merely inferior to them in skill, but lower in God's eyes." As this pride increases, the subject which confers this privilege will grow more and more complicated. The list of things forbidden will increase till to get through a single day without supposed sin becomes like an elaborate step dance. And this horrible network breeds self-righteousness in some and haunting anxiety in others. Meanwhile, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy, shrink into insignificance under the vast overgrowth, so that legalists strain at the gnat and swallow a camel. Thus the law can take on a cancerous life of its own and work against what it exists for in the first place. The teachers of the law were correct. When they said that the Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers said to the man who had been healed on the Sabbath, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Technically, they're correct. It was forbidden to carry a burden on the Sabbath. You can read about it in Jeremiah 17 where where Jeremiah castigates the people for carrying burdens. He's castigating them for carrying burdens because they're carrying out commerce on that day instead of resting as the Lord tells them to. To, to have some faith in me, would you please? And realize that you don't have to constantly engage in acquisitiveness. The Sabbath is not... An end in itself. It's a means to an end. And the circumstances of what happens on it matter. An ironclad keeping of the rules that's deleterious to human well being and flourishing is not keeping the Sabbath, it's violating it. Now, the Sabbath is the earthly analog. To God's Sabbath day of rest after he created the world. It's a rest that continues to this day. It's a rest that goes on without end. But please note that God's rest is not a rest of uninvolvement or inactivity, it's a working rest of care and of provision and a blessing. And Jesus reflects that. He does the same thing. When he heals this man on the Sabbath, there couldn't be a more appropriate day on which to heal him. After 38 years. he says, my father is always working. I like the way it says it in the original. My father is working up to this moment. And I too am working. Well... He's confessed it. He was working on the Sabbath. But he's done something more damnable in their eyes. He's called God his Father, making himself equal with God. Friends, you know, I want to tell you that idolatry is frighteningly easy for us to fall into unless you can see God himself. The scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the teachers of the law, they smugly thought that they had escaped the idolatry of their ancestors. There were no household gods in their homes, no images of Baal, but they were idolaters nonetheless because they had substituted the Sabbath, they'd substituted the law for God himself. And they claimed to know God. And the claim of Jesus here is astonishing, because His claim is that He is the test of their claim. and He's the test of ours. John had begun his gospel by telling us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. John tells us right up front who this is that we're dealing with. In chapter 14, when Jesus talks about his uh, leaving, his departing, He's going to the cross and the disciples are sad. Philip says to him, he says, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, Philip, have I been with you so long and yet you don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus says the same thing to these chief priests, to these teachers of the law here. God, the Father, is at work. The Son must be at work. The Son does only what the Father does because, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. And as the Father raises the dead, so the Son will raise the dead. And God's judgments, His verdicts, Jesus said, will be delivered by the Son. And he says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And that's the test. The true disposition that people have toward God is seen in the disposition that they have toward his Son. The scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law claimed to know God and yet when the one who is God stood before them they didn't recognize him they didn't recognize him because they had idols because they substituted institutions and practices and principles for God himself They took good things, the good things of God's word, and they elevated them. They made them ultimate things. And in doing so, converted them into idols. And then they worshipped them rather than worshipping God. And so when God stood before them, when the Lord of the Sabbath stood before them, they didn't know Him. the only thing that they could see that they could conclude is he's violating the Sabbath because they had elevated the Sabbath to an idolatrous ultimacy. You know, whenever I read this passage in the Gospel of John or passages like it, I always have a a, a tinge of concern that arises within me. And I wonder if 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 I had been there, if I had seen Jesus of Nazareth with my own eyes, would I have recognized him? Or is my vision too focused on institutions and practices and principles? It's a kind of a startling thing when you read through the Gospels for the most part. It's not who knew those who knew the Bible best who recognized him it was ruffians and rebels but i suppose the question for you and for me thankfully is not would i have recognized him would you have recognized him had we laid our eyes on him then the question is do you recognize him now do we honor him now? For as we honor him, we honor God. As we dishonor him, we dishonor God. And how do we, or better, how should we, honor him? I said before that first that, that John is really just a summing up of the teaching of Jesus found in the Gospel of John. And, and John sums up the whole point of that teaching, I think, well in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. I'd like to read it to you. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only begotten son into the world that we might have life through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made perfect in us. So that was the final command that Jesus gave to us, love one another. He said that's how people would know that we are his disciples. The religious elite saw a man walking, walking after 38 years of being lame and their only thought was not, oh, what a wonderful blessing for this man. Praise God. Their only thought was that mat that he's carrying might constitute a burden on the Sabbath. When the law is elevated to idolatry, it becomes an ugly thing that denies love to the detriment of people. But the law is not an end in itself. The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that the law's purpose is to bring us to Christ. And Christ came to bring us to God. In the end, the goal of the law is not the enforcement of institutions, it's not the fear that we might appear uh, something less than infallible. But the goal of the law is love. That's what Jesus said. He said, you want to know the summation of the law? Here it is. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. In John's first letter, there are two marks of Antichrist. One is denying Christ. The other is hating others. And you can't really separate those two things. We honor the Father by honoring the Son. And we honor the Son by living in the love that He's commanded us to live in just as He's loved us. So as we prepare to participate together today in the Lord's table, let us examine ourselves. Because idolatry is frighteningly easy for us to fall into unless we can see God in Christ. And we know we have when we live in love. Mm